Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a plenary address by Professor John McCafferty of University College Dublin. His paper was entitled A Single Witness, Ireland and Europe Through the Eyes of a Small Man with a Big Nose. This is, this is a, a, a game, this paper, because um, everything I say today really is going to be drawn from two sources written by the said man. So in the vast church at Paderborn, which as you know is in Germany, the devil told a friar from South County, Dublin, that he was a great man with a little nose. The caption, Nicholas Archbold, was born around 1558 to 1589, around that time, in Shankill, and joined the captions in Cologne in 1611, and was educated at Dowey, Antwerp and Paderborn. Archbold was both irked and amused by the demonical slur, because, as he said himself, I am little of body, but of nose great and aquiline. For him, the insult was further proof that the devil had an innate inability to speak the truth. The devil always says the opposite of what the truth is. The the devil has what one student told one of my colleagues once, uh, uh, oppositional disorder is what the devil has. Uh, That's why he couldn't come to any lectures or tutorials. So you had to not ask him. So he said, don't come to lectures and tutorials. So the student contended he would come to lectures and tutorials. Anyway, the devil is like that. For Archibald, the insult was for um, Archibald's own life uh, as a religious psalm, as guardian of the Irish caption exile headquarters of Charleville, northeastern France, from 1622 to 26. And then he was active in Dublin and the Pale area from 26 to 1642. Then he was rounded up with a bunch of other Catholic priests, deported back to France. And in 1645, he appears again in Ireland as guardian at Wexford. And he died in the best caption form, tending plague victims in 1650. It's one of the specialisms of the captions to go out after plague victims. I'd say they're glad the plague is more or less extinct now. Archibald loved words of all kinds. Um, He was a prolific writer and a translator from French, German and Latin into English, and he delighted in writing Latin verse. Two lengthy manuscripts by him, The Evangelical Fruit of the Seraphical Franciscan Order and a history of the captions in Ireland survive in his own blunt, clear hand. And together they total about 100,000 words and are written in a crackling, as you would see, buzzing Hiberno-English that describes the early days of the mission in Ireland with all the zest and energy of the Acts of the Apostles. Francis Lavenel Nugent uh, of Westmead and founder of the Irish Mission is both the Peter and Paul of this text, and I'll be of these two texts, and I'll be talking about him a good bit. Archibald's repeated insistence on his own witness gives much of his writing its energy, and again and again he records how he heard things with his own ears, saw them with his own eyes, and how he sat in the same room as caption heroes, ascetics, and mystics of every kind. Now, in his not so cunningly disguised autobiographical appearance as Father Stellius. Archibald uh, celebrates his love of geography, um, especially of Ortelius's theatre. With foreign travellers, he, that's Archibald, so discoursed of the several counties, seas, islands, cities, that it seemed he travelled there himself in person. And Archibald crossed and recrossed the globe, overlapping it with providential, political and pious lines of longitude and latitude. 
He revelled in the boundaryless, mystical empire of the Roman Church and its Franciscan family. He noted the Catholic empires of France and Spain. He examined the works of the pagan, heretic and Islamic empires of Japan, Britain, Holland, Turkey and Persia, all of them anti-empires, really, in his mind. And finally, at the heart of Europe, the Holy Roman Empire was broken, scandalous and defective. The real interest for Archibald, though, and for his confreres lay in the interaction between these secular empires and the missions on every continent. And sometimes the rage is dazzling. In one sentence, faster than Google Earth, the reader is bought from a Quebec mission to Wallonia, to Ireland. And missions were a further proof that it was Catholics who built up and Protestants who tore them down. Now, Archibald's accounts give us... um, an inside glimpse into the torrent of information and conditioning pouring even into the most uh, cloistered Franciscans. Necrologies, martyrologies, litanies, histories of the order, house lectors, obediences and directives from the general, the local ordinaries, and the constant throughput of visiting friars, and the prescribed readings in church history, history of the order, and in hagiography. All of this coming to bear on him, relentlessly pushing a friar from his local to the order's uh, universal. Now, Velcro, uh, the greatest advance in clothing closure since the zipper, this actually matters, uh, was invented, it seems, after one frustrated dog owner whipped out a microscope to see why the burrs stuck so maddeningly and efficiently to furry backs. And his discovery of a tiny hook-and-eye system ended centuries of teaching small children how to do up laces. Now, microhistorians, it has been argued, are actually trying to discover very big things with their microscopes and magnifying lenses. And how does that all work? Well, as Carlo Ginzburg said, summing up the driving force of his famous cheese and worms, it is by minute analysis of circumscribed documentation tied to a person who was not otherwise known. Now, while this turn to the tiny is easy to connect with the disillusionments of left-leaning Italian historians with the state of their country in the 1970s and 1980s, Um, attempts to develop a theoreticised relationship between micro and macro levels, as in economics, have not gone well for history. The truth is, as Giovanni Levi conceded, prying into the bijou dossiers is an idea with eclectic roots and all sorts of soils. Now, this turns out to be very handy because the last thing any set of historical texts need is a straitjacket. So all that's required when looking at a small group of evidence is a clear sense of the time of composition, the place of composition, and joined to an unrelenting insistence on context. Formally, Nicholas Archibald's texts present first as a chronicle and the second one as a narrative history. On reading, things change. Together, they constitute um, a fragmentary personal history in which the author lurches from omnipotent narrator to enthusiastic witness to, as you saw, facile pseudonym. There are also some liberal dashes of the kind of self-congratulation that only someone who professionally avows humility can carry off. His proclaimed subjects, the Franciscan Familia and the Irish Caption Mission, dissolve into stories of the island, the world and the hereafter. And his two books deliver a constant back and forth between micro and macro history, between close-up and extreme long shots. Now, if he'd stuck to what he said he was going to do, we wouldn't have the texts which so usefully show their joins and repairs and which are uh, so definitely, to borrow the language of clothing again, and then I'll shut up about clothing, they're they're distressed texts. The evangelical fruit and the history of the Irish captions can easily take rough handling. So first I want to pick out some treads and test them against the various hypotheses uh, we have about early modern Ireland and Europe. Second, I'm going to unravel some parts to see what might be new. 
Third, I want to start marking up the constituent parts in order to see what materials went into the making. And finally, because the two texts are by Archbold rather than about him, there is the rare chance for Ireland, anyway, to essay a minute analysis of the mindsets, the aspirations and disappointments of a middle-ranking professional who writes at length about his times and places. So what we have is about 100,000 words. Well, actually, really annoying for me, there are actually 99,820 words in the text, and I wish he'd written another 80 words. I'm thinking of importing 80 words just to get up to... Anyway, 100,000 words, we'll say, by run man rooted in the ditches, hedges, bridges, uh, bridges and streams of the Pale. So in Dublin, in Lusk, Corvallis, the Wicklow Hills, Shankill, Curtistown, Dunsockley, Holt and Leakslip. And from there, taking wing to Chester, London and Suffolk, across the channel to Le Havre, Rouen, Paris, Charleville, Sedan, and then on to the Rhineland zone of Munster, Cologne and Paderborn, up and over the Alps to Switzerland, Milan and Rome, while also noticing Turkey, the Holy Land, Persia, India, China, the Philippines, New Spain and New France, and all capped off with updates from hell, purgatory and the court of heaven. (laughs) Archbold's sense of world order and global mission create a wide background against which to hang some more specific sketches, and that's what I'm going to give you from now on, vignettes, if you will. So, sometime in the late 1610s or early 1620s, Father Christopher Carney was arrested in England. Picked up with him were an Irish observant and 15 soldiers. They all refused the oath of supremacy and were jailed. After a time, Christopher, who had become a trustee, escaped into town, passed himself off as a French traveller, hired a post horse and galloped by the prison from whose windows his companions cried out to him in French for alms, but also in Irish, bidding him good fortune and adieu. Archbold liked both the story and the trick. Irish as a language crops up in these two texts quite frequently, but Irishness even more. Now, we're all too familiar with attempts to articulate ideas, Irish attempts to articulate Irishness for continental audiences, and we don't need to go over that. But what did the continentals think of the Irish? Well, the Walloon friars of the Gallo Belgian province uh, had views on Irish men. They believed Nugent and his proteges to be temperamentally and circumstantially incapable of maintaining the rule. They excoriated the Irish for using mission conditions to justify accepting money wearing secular dress, and, worst of all, riding horses. They even took the propensity of Francis Nugent and Patrick Bath to nosebleeds to deem it some incurable quality annexed to the Irish man and recommended no further reception of Irish men into the order. A decade later, at Charleville, Nugent, himself a rigorist, was de facto deposed as guardian by his own community, and Archbold was constrained to explain to his friend the humour of our Irish religious men who naturally loved and approved mild and sweet government. The problem, Archibald thought, was that his mentor's continental experiences had not prepared him for the tenor of Irish religious life. Now, there's a nice contradiction here between public defence of the need for an Irish caption mission and the ability of the Irish to keep the rule and a private internal admission of an Irish disrelish for what Archibald called severity, underkeeping and rigorousness. Now, when we move from Archibald's individual pen to Archibald's individual pen portraits, he's 88 pen portraits of captions, there's a similar instability. Patrick Bath of Drogheda is praised for his impartiality. When he procured a condition for studies to any Irish youth, he never inquired of what part he was of Ireland. It was enough to him that he was an Irishman. Now, imagine not asking someone where they were from in Ireland. That would still be extraordinary today. 
But is this a sign of a changing mindset or a virtue so remarkable as to be recorded? Then there was the opposite and still familiar tendency. Bonaventure Behan was very zealous for the good of his country, especially for his, the territory of his nativity to wit, to wit Leash, for which he procured some graces and favours at Rome. Behan went on to write to the Archbishop of Dublin to maintain that he had been sent only to the lost sheep of the House of Israel, by which he meant County Leash. Another example, Archbold records of the O'Moors that they were mightily hated and persecuted by the English, cause whereof many of them were constrained to depart their own country and go into foreign lands. And indeed, the O'Moor he writes about actually was brought up in Spain. So what we have here is a common uh, name, three sets uh, of ideas. The common name of Irishman, uh, then overweening localism, and then some wild geese. At other times, Archibald opts for the familiar cluster, Irish is synonymous with Catholic and English with Protestant. So the island of Ireland is an obscure Egypt overcrowded with heresy. England and London are Babylonian, run by a Britannian synagogue. The 1641 rebellion is a consequence of the tyrannical government of England, which then segues into a Protestant, then Puritan plot. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Here we see the author oscillating between confessional causation for the rebellion and ethnic catalyst. When speaking of Sir Charles Moore's defence of Drogheda in winter 1641, the Protestant Moore was cousin to one of the Capuchins. The besieging rebels, rebels are sometimes Irish, and then they're sometimes Catholics. Moore's escape plan from Drogheda, by the way, if it hadn't gone well, was incidentally uh, uh, to borrow a Capuchin habit and then walk away with another friar. Interesting kind of little uh, side thing. 1641 might be a bid, as uh, in Archibald's mind, as he said, to cast the yoke of the tyrannical government of the Protestant English, but he still regards Sir Charles Coote's debt at Trim as being at the hands of the Irish. Protestants, at least those in Dublin, uh, made some similar equations of ethnicity, language, and at the dockside in 1641, uh, 1642, uh, a crowd taunted Archibald and the priests of Dublin as they awaited deportation, and listen to what they say. A hone, the Pope is dead, the Mass is gone. And Archbold was in the parallel groove. Ireland, he declared, is infected with English heresies. What we're seeing here is an old English man, descendant of martyr lords, working through and around the various iterations of Irish identity brought about by his vocation and the events of the 1630s and 1640s. So what we're seeing is work in progress captured in the amber of his own written words. Now, lay people in these texts usually function as clients, foils, or opponents of the friars. Occasionally, though, we see other things percolate up. A scene in a poor gentleman's household at Rouen give a clue, perhaps, to how these islands had been painted for French Catholics in the 1620s. How dare you, say the denizens of the house, good fathers, to go among cruel heretics who thirst after nothing so much as your life and blood. And a less pious French sentiment is revealed in Archibald's own translation of 1612 life of Henri Duc de Joyeuse, who as Perange was the most celebrated aristocratic denizen of a Capuchin cloister. Crossing the Seine Bridge of Saint-Michel, uh, Father Angel, as uh, uh, Archibald calls him, encounters Irish beggars huddled over a fire and approaches. And this gloss is completely unique to this manuscript. He approaches these poor gras days, so that they are called at Paris, gras day, a contemptuous echo from the French of their hibernophone begging. In the 1611 uh, preface 
to his justification and exposition of the Mass, Henry Fitzsimon, SJ, not only picked a fight with the ascendant Irish Capuchins, he also described Father Christopher Cusack, uh, the founder of Dawe, as meanly languaged. Great, great phrase. Two continentally trained Irish Capuchins who heard confessions in Rome during the Jubilee year of 1625 were plumply languaged as they shrived in Irish, English, Latin, French, Spanish, Italian, German and Flemish. And Archibald's own training included Greek and the real platinum-grade language, Hebrew, at the hands of one Abraham. As a serial translator himself, he noted with approval the continued use in some areas of an Irish translation of the Confitior done by Stephen Daly, the first Capuchin missionary of Ireland. And Archibald's attention to language, and you might be interested to know that the OED records him as exemplar for a number of rare words. His attention to language, though, registers more than an enjoyment and more, too, than an evangelical purpose. His rope-like praise of Irish confrères for their mastery of French reads as a riposte to the Walloon caption slights on their pastoral work at Charleville, Messier, Sedan and up and down the Meuse. French went so deeply into his own expression that it just tripped off his quill. So Lusk, for instance, is a burg in the technical sense of a large prosperous cluster hovering between a village and a town. Beer, wine and spirits become collectively artificial boissons and revealingly, when speaking about himself in the third person, he deploys the word anepuisab for inexhaustible in an otherwise monoglot sentence. Archibald's Franco-English coining of the word lurdicity um, is mustered while he's on the very personal topic of religious life. Now, lurdicity, uh, not in the OED, not in the huge online dictionnaire d'autrefois, but for different contents, uh, you can work out from the context quite easily, lurdicity means heaviness of spirit, gives a glimpse into the idiolect and maybe the mentality of a long-term expatriate. With the French language itself, the stakes were high, as a note in Lord Moore's cousin Charles records. He was made preacher, giving satisfaction, notwithstanding the curious, elegant, thirsting ear of the French. These Irish men were operating in a France and a Europe which bundled language, character and civilization together. Gabriel Sagar, a French observant and contemporary of Archibald, compiled the first French Huron Dictionary in 1632. Yet Sagar, the dictionary man, firmly believed that the Hurons could only upgrade their innate nobility to full civilization via the clarity and language of the French tone. Francis Nugent betrayed the same belief in the holistic effect of language choice in his admiration for William Macri, who after two years novitiate at Ypres had metamorphosed, as he says, into the Flemish humour, speech, countenance and behaviour. Language, in short, did more than it said on the tongue. Nowhere is this more revealing of Archibald's conception of himself as a reformed uh, Franciscan and reformed Catholic than when it comes to Latin. Now, Latin was first of all a living spoken used language for these men. Three best friends, Patrick Bath, Nicholas Archbold and Christopher Carney, painted Fides, Spes and Caritas over their respective cell doors at Charleville. Sweet. Now, if French words and phrases bubble up in these twin texts, then Latin runs right through them. Here we have two English language books intended for novices and lay brothers, perhaps, but all disedifying moments are swayed in the advanced language. So vicious community bickering in Charleville, the fleshy sins of a town tottering towards heresy in the Ardennes, or an entry, amazing entry, for December 1629 on the odd suicide of one well-connected observant friar, a barnwall, all these go into Latin, like the Victorian thing, put the dirty bits in Latin. 
The elite lay confraternity of the Holy Cross, begun at Cologne by Francis Nugent, required three things of members, faith, birth and Latinity. All of the bulls, records, chapter builds and disputes of the Irish captions were naturally in Latin. But the Roman language was also a gold standard. Ranked after Nugent's death, uh, Archbold offered seven affirmations of his friend's character. Ranked number four, after chastity, abandonment to the divine will and dramatic preaching came his Ciceronian style. First eulogies of deceased brethren peppered these texts, but almost none are in the vernacular. Latin passages are never translated. The odd word, but never a passage. The Latin Vulgate is joined quite simply onto English sentences like this. So that I may verily say of him that men did wonder in verbis gratiae quae precidbant de ore eos. Luke 4, uh, 13, if you're wondering. Latin we know is the language of liturgy, scripture and theology, but it is in these texts the language of heaven itself. Reported speech between Christ, the Blessed Virgin, or saints and Capuchins in vision scenes is in Latin. Jesus, his mammy and their friends all speak Latin. Not just a marker of status, not just a school exercise, not just even the acne of rhetoric, but the bulwark of religious life, marker of boundaries of Reformed Catholicism, and a bridge to the transcendent was Latin. Now, it might be a coincidence, but the devil, for all his aping, doesn't speak Latin here. Like his friends on earth, he opts for the vernacular. Satan does have, however, a nice taxonomy of heresy. So he tells you how um, Calvinists, for instance, Satan, this is one of the times he is telling the truth, apparently, uh, Calvinists are worse than Lutherans because Calvinists disrespect the Holy Sacrament uh, more. Archbold shared this idea of a taxonomy of heresy. He saw all heretics, which was his default term for them all, as associates of the father of lies. But all of the words served up for the devil, for the plague and money, particular bugbear of the caption, all of these words, black, sterile, disease, canker, dark, are unfalteringly attached to heresy. Appropriately enough for an author enthralled by travel literature, European confessional choice is mapped out. So, for the spacious country of Germany, largely overgrown with the cockle of heresy, there is, in the main, Lutheranism, labelled just so. France and Berentine, bear in mind that these accounts were written just as the French crown was under caption guidance, reeling back on the Edict of Nantes, France is the, Hume, is the home of the Huguenotical sect, as he calls them. Switzerland and then the Netherlands get to be Calvinist. Finally, those conforming to the churches of England and Ireland are simply Protestants. The state is the Protestant state, and individual named people are Protestants. Lutherans, Calvinists, Huguenots, Protestants are also interchangeably heretics and sometimes sectorists. But never once in 100,000 words is anyone outside Ireland and England labelled Protestant. The settlement Archbold knew, along with everyone else, was far from settled. This is what he wrote in 1643. Henrician Protestancy has been turning daily into Calvinistical Puritanity. The main point of the Puritans, he added, is the abolition of monarchy as King James himself foresaw. Now, conversion, of course, was the riposte to heresy. Conversion was also the chief business of the Capuchins in Northern and Western Europe. Archibald's texts are clotted with conversions. Father Columba Glynn is attributed with 33 individual conversions in the Dublin region between 1619 and 1633, a mass conversion of 22 more people following a disputation with the minister of Ratholt, and during an eight-day preaching tour of Connacht in 1620, he reconciled 114 Protestants. I didn't even know there were 114 Protestants in Connacht in 1620, but there you are. 
There are deathbeds, disputations, miracles and random acts such as when James Warren found himself waiting for his friends to come out of mass at Corbalis, strong hold of the Birmingham family, and he picked up Robert Parsons' best-selling book of resolution, which happened to be lying around, and immediately sought out the priest for absolution and reconciliation. Now, these Irish cases of conversion are so numerous and detailed, they merit separate treatments, and I'll do that again some other time. And I'm not concerned now with who was converted or, or how, um, but rather to see how the topic is, is handled by Archbold. Virtually all of his conversion accounts fit his overarching themes of the superiority of Capuchin life and the nobility of its adherents. In consequence, then, and with the kind of tenuous uh, association we see in, you know, that thing in Amazon, customers who bought this also bought, and you're wondering, do I have that bad taste? Anyway, with that kind of logic, the captions are nudged into the limelight of three of the highest profile conversions of the day. Benjamin Carrier, uh, James VI and first chaplain, not theirs, Jesuit job that was, the king's wife, Anne of Denmark, and Lady Falkland, who actually makes cameo appearance in this text at the sickbed conversion of Lady Ursula White of Leakslip. The very first conversion covered by Archbold was at Cologne and featured a certain Calvinistical woman, great scripturian. This wealthy woman experienced a variant of the Mass of Gregory the Great when the elevated host resolved itself into a face that rebuked her for her obduracy. Give up your old sins, convert, it literally says. Following an investigation, Archibald was actually there on the day, he was the subdeacon at the Mass, Nugent was saying Mass. An account of her lacrimose reconciliation to the Catholic Roman religion was deposited in the city archives. And there's a whole other paper and the various labels he gives to Catholicism. I can't go into that now. So anyway, her conversion account is deposited in the city archives. Uh, there are several points to note here. First, the Irish captions were initially deployed to fight heresy on the German, not on the home front. Second, Cologne was an herbs, her confessional choice was Roman, and seat of a key counter-Reformation nunciature. It was, in other words, a perfect inverse of Dublin. In the city of the Magi, the relics of the three kings are in Cologne, Dutch, German and French Protestants used an intermittently oppressed house church to conduct their services. Sounds familiar, except in reverse. And the woman who's converted here is a scripturian, and variants of this theme crop up over and over. Others of her ilk wander through the scriptural fields like an untamed deer, or are great biblists and readers of history. And in an image redolent of the heady days of the Troubles in, in the 1980s, a planter in leash clutches a great cudgel in one hand and a great English Bible in the other. And along the confessional fault lines, wherever they happen to be, Irish Capuchins deploy sacraments and sacramentals. Francis Nugent, for instance, was ordained to the priesthood in a highly communal ceremony at the marginal, confessionally marginal town of Mons, and he was crowned with roses, redolent, of course, of the Rosa Mystica. The friars closed in on Calvinist Sedan, and they won there in the end, with exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. In the end, though, conversions were only one wheel on the chariot of reform. Here is how Archbold explained the extension of the caption order into Germany. It was for the reduction of heretics to the ancient religion and the confirmation of Catholics in the same with reformation of life. Reduction, confirmation, reformation. The same held true of Ireland, where, as he says, preachers reduced Protestants to the Catholic religion and induced Catholics to reconcile themselves to God by making general confessions. The new friars bring tears 
as he says, and heat to an Ireland where the chief peril is a lack of enthusiasm brought about by their cold, phlegmatic disposition. And there's a great scene in, in Lusk where he says, on that day, Father X preached so wonderfully that they all began to behave like Italians. They cried and majesticulated and so on. One wavering Protestant family in Leinster dismissed both their minister and priest as ignorant, illettered and idiots. The captions aimed to burn away both willful Protestant ignorance and slothful Catholic ignorance through the heat of divine charity. This missionary heat extended out into broad social goals. So taking their cue from Francis of Assisi, the friars prided themselves on dispute resolution. Separated and squabbling couples, would-be suicides, suicides being people who are in effect feuding with themselves, jealous nobles, contentious heirs and divided communities in France, Germany and Ireland are reconciled by the bearded mendicants. The captions, like all contemporary reformers, believed in remoulding society from top to toe. This leads me to what I think may be an interesting point. In Ireland, the caption threat to the state resided not so much in their ostensible crime of the maintenance of foreign jurisdiction than in the attempt to create a social order, an alternative social order, around the authoritative figure of the missionary priest. So just think, like the same kind of thing that's going on with the Sinn Féin courts in the War of Independence, an alternative social civic structure. I think that's what really worries Dublin Castle, not whether they're handing around papal bulls in their backyard or whatever. For Archibald, these truths were supernaturally self-evident. Those with the temerity to attack the captions found this out the hard way. The wife of the governor of Charleville, Madame Daubilly, lost her child pretty harsh, as a result of a foolish feud with the friars. Other foes fell ill, broke limbs, fell from grace, lost their wealth, or just dropped dead. Their temporal punishment was assured. Conversely, good patrons enjoyed an end to fertility problems, uh, they got rich, and they got the odd angelic visitation. That's top-notch uh, thing there, visit from an angel. On a trivial note, it appears that the standard Irish caption intercession for patrons, if you ask them to pray, was five patters and aves in the choir with arms extended. And that could get you a kid after, after a long period of uh, uh, trying. Storms at sea. Uh, so many of the miracles here turn out to be signs of the times or have a didactic tinge. So storms at sea, for instance, assist the friars in evading enemies, convert, converting heretics, reheating uh, the unenthusiastic and even rewarding patrons. Now, there are lots and lots of storm scenes in these texts. And this is in a Europe fixed on the image of the true church as the bark of safety. Again, the Irish captions are spared outbreaks of the plague that carry off friends and foes alike. This immunity mirrors their resistance to the spiritual plague of heresy. Now, of course, there were real storms, and of course, there were real plagues. But I think it is through the way in which Archibald writes about these things, about these realities, that we hear the background noise of the Thirty Years' War. Now, these two texts may girdle the globe, but they are simultaneously the products of confined and crowded spaces. Archibald belonged to two fractious and status-conscious families. The first of these families was his own order, whose practice of mental mystical prayer and strict adherence to the rule of St. Francis was, he modestly believed, sweeping Europe and all of its peoples before it. Other congregations, he thought, imitated to flatter, so we're told that the Carmelites adopted the armed cross, that the conventuals are now sporting beards, and that the Minims have rediscovered the Poverello of Assisi as their true founder. 
Jesuits, like Fitzsimon, might accuse the Capuchins of pride, poaching, and a proletarian ambiance. Fitzsimon, terrible snob. But Archbold was quick to counter with stories of the fathers of the society who alleged that the devil wore a Capuchin habit. And he calls them Negri Togeans, black robes, or societists. They were clearly suffering, in Archbold's view, from mission envy. He likes to point out that Marco Antonio de Dominis, notorious recidivist schismatic, was once a Jesuit. And even in good days, such as a joint mission on the banks of the Meuse, the Ignatians, which is his kindest label for them, are only there to soak up the torrent of penance undammed by the Capuchins. The observants, who are closest to his own order, fare better. They're doubled, they're dubbed holy recollects, but they're still flawed precursors. So while he has some kind words, and well he might, for his cousin, Bernardine Archbold, OFM, other Franciscans, like the preacher and writer John Preston, are too prolix. And this is real catty stuff, because it's a technical violation of the rule. Major figures like Aid MacAngle get only passing notice. And he, while he does devote a decent space to the observant hagiographer, Patrick Fleming, uh, his martyrdom in Bohemia, but he says nothing at all extraordinary about Bishop Cornelius O'Devany's massively prominent execution at Dublin. I mean, O'Devany's execution is Europe-wide news, not in there. So it's hard here to resist thinking of Archibald as a teenager. He knows the observants are his parents, but they're not very cool. At Dublin itself, the Jesuits, Franciscans and Capuchins operated cheek by jowl. All of their residences packed into the space, the space actually Colin was talking about yesterday, now bounded by the Brazenhead pub, Adam and Eve's church and Cook Street. So that little rectangle there. And those living in, those, in the houses were themselves overwhelmingly connected by blood to Archibald's second extended family, the Intimate Society of the Pale. At Bridge Street, the Capuchins lived in the front room of Archibald's apparently conforming cousin, Alderman John Carberry. 88, as I said, Irish Capuchins are named in these two texts, and it would be tedious here to start tracing their connections. But I'll just give you one taste. Father Edward Bath, friend of Archibald's preacher, was cousin to Lady Ursula White, nay Moore, and to her husband, Sir Nicholas White. In turn, Bath's mother's brother-in-law, are you with me, uh, was the ever-flippant sceptic Sir Henry Warren. When Henry Warren was dying, uh, Captions raced off to the deathbed and couldn't get anywhere with him. And uh, this, is, this is when they're all waiting for Wentworth to arrive. And they say, just say Jesus Maria. That'll, that'll do you. And he goes, Jesus Maria, is my Lord Deputy arrived yet? And they, they can't get him, right? Okay, they, can't, they just can't uh, get him. Anyway, he dies, dies in heresy. Anyway, the ever-flippant sceptic Sir Henry Warren, his nephew was James Warren, the convert at Corbalis. Meanwhile, in London, Sir John Bath, another relation of Edwards and younger brother to the Jesuit linguist William Bath, in London, Bath, negotiator for the Old English, provided a safe house and viaticum for captions in transit through England. And nothing catches the flavour of this world better than Archibald's assertions that Sir John was much in favour with the King and the Duke of Buckingham. Well, he wasn't, given the results of his negotiations on the trained bands. Um, and in, this is a nearly familiar trope, stories of a relation with the big job in London. Now, there's more to discover about the networks and influences and scores of biographies delivered by Archbold himself, but I just want to finish off with some more pointy details and then make a final comment. For example, one day in Carberry's front room, our friar proudly showed a music manuscript composed by an unnamed friar for the 40 hours devotion at Tournai to a man he calls John Gore, prime musician in Ireland. 
And could this be a relation of the Edmund Gore, Vicar Crowell of Christchurch in 1597? Are we getting, we can talk to Kerry Houston about this, are we getting details of an Irish musical dynasty, another fragment? Um, other things crop up too. Father Fortunate Talbot of Dardistan shortened his life, we are told, just like Louis XIII, um, through eating too many melons. Irish captions also discover that clothing another brother in the habit of a recent plague victim was somewhat reckless. <laughs> Fevered friars should not be left unwatched. They had a tendency to jump out the window. Um, doctors, even if recommended by a man's aristocratic relations, could turn out to be quacks, like the Scots mountebank, whose powders did for Edward Bath in Christmas 1634. Better to take a leaf out of the book of the captions in Normandy, who had an in-house friar doctor and an apothecary shop for their exclusive use. Now, all of the usual early modern maladies, stones, gravel, damps, make their due appearance, and there are some wonderful mavericks, like uh, the Fleming Archbold Met, who eschewed conventional wisdom. Instead of using gunpowder as a fumigant, this man ate it to ward off the plague and made no more account of eating it as if he had sw- than if he had swallowed a handful of sugar or currants. Now, these references, of course, don't add up to a philosophy of health, enjoyable as they are. Um, but some of his preoccupations, such as that with preaching, do help sharpen our, our pictures. And, and, and you get endless descriptions of preaching, but what's particularly interesting is he, uh, you can see that they preach a lot with um, gestures and with pictures, and he has accounts of them actually preaching to people who don't understand the, langu- the, the language they're preaching in, in French in this case, but anyway, get the good out of the sermon because of the dramatic gestures of the preacher and so on. I want to finish with um, some widely uh, dispersed details in the text which add up to open up the Irish convent at Charleville. Charles Gonzaga, the Duke of uh, Nevers, originally offered the site of the, uh, the friary at Charleville to the Gallo-Belgian province, who declined it on the grounds that they were Spanish subjects. So like Wadding and St Isidore's, Nugent took a house earmarked for others. And despite the fides, spes and caritas decor, the house was rocked by a series of internal rows and defections that left the Irish feeling like, in Archibald's opposite phrase, a harp untuned. Um, we also know that at Gonzaga's request, the friars added protectrix huius urbis to the Marian litanies. They set aside a special suite for the Duke in life and a bespoke crypt for him in death, but he died in Italy as it happened. And in 1625, the Archbishop of Reims, the English uh, Benedictine Gabriel Gifford, consecrated the friary church. And here's part of the description. The chapels were dedicated... That next to the church door to St. Patrick, Apostle of Ireland, wherein is his image with a picture of the young Earl of Tyrconnell, who gave the image, valued £10 sterling. The further up to St. Francis, on the altar of which is our burial cave. And the third, which is under the choir, to St. Charles Borromeo. Now, Patrick is expected, but the donor and Archibald's recognition of a Spanish title are interesting. So the donor is Edo Donal, who was left as a few months old in the care of the observant friars. So he's obviously switched his allegiances uh, to the captions here, has decided to back them as well. And then when Rory died in July 1608, uh, A took the title Conde de Tirconnell. Now, Ireland's patron and chief missionary were inevitably joined by Francis the founder. But the third chapel belonged to Carlo Bartomeo Santo Subito, canonised in 1610. Here was a devotional repast to the critics of the Irish mission because the hook-nosed cardinal, founder of a Swiss college in Milan, had been the chief instigator in pushing the captions, despite opposition, over the Alps to prop up Catholicism in the Swiss valleys. Edmund Mar- Campion Martyr visited Borromeo in 1580 on his final journey to England, but had it a, de- a decade earlier visited Ireland and, of course, was sheltered by the fathers and uncles of a lot of the people who were now in this friary. So the Borromeo Chapel made a sharp statement about a further caption transit west and across the sea. Back in now 
the devil. The devil, the plague might have stopped at the door of the friary, but they couldn't keep the devil out. Uh, and to return to Germany, where we began. Luke Rochford of Kilbride, County Mead, joined the friars in November 1611, the same month as Archbold. He didn't stay. The trouble began with a demon dog who magically penetrated the novices' locked dormitories at night. Fear. Then again, this is my favourite bit, then again in the small hours in the morning, Rochford drew from under his bed a short, thick-membered monster which vanished out of his hands. Sex. You don't have to be a Freudian to work that one out. The devil then began to customise his assaults. His victim felt as if his habit were more heavy unto him than a hundred-pound weight of lead, yet it was but a thin-worn tunic. Religious dress. The next temptation was the persistent thought that he could do more in a day to catechise the rude people than 100 days in this religion, the cloister. And there was more. If he accepted his inheritance, he could marry and preside over a godly family, celibacy. Finally, he could give alms to the poor, the right use of money. Now, you've guessed the end. The instant Luke was out the convent door, he began on a lifelong remorse, and they wouldn't take him back, and he spent the rest of his life writing pathetic letters to young seminarians saying, join the Capuchins, he'll be so happy. Um, Archbold delivered himself of a monetary Latin-English scripture pun on his former companion. Chichidit Petrus, the rock splintered, Rochford recoiled. Now, Rochford's temptations are as unoriginal as sin itself, but they are also revelatory. The same tempter who took a cheap crack at Archbold's small stature is actually ventriloquizing. The devil is speaking with the voice of reformers, ex-friars who advocated godly married life, activity in the world and its marketplaces, even more preaching and catechesis, and righteous charity, righteous charity here being mendicancy reversed. And you remember the supplication for beggars and all that, all that went on in the early stages of the Reformation. The roots of the Capuchin Order, of course, lay in the observant reform movements of the 15th century. And these groups of observants across the mendicant orders had professionalised preaching and promoted a more intense, more inward and more individual engagement with Jesus Christ. It was from their ranks that the Luther, the heresiarch, sprang. Leo X's quip about Reformation as a quarrel among friars was as true of Ireland, think of George Brown and John Bale, as it was of England, Scotland and all of Europe. Archbold's deepest identity, his formation, his education, his mission in Ireland, his very order itself were all heir to that raging quarrel. So his world chronicle, his provincial history, his stuttering life writing are at once tiny component and miniature emblem of a religious crisis that convulsed Europe and Ireland for centuries. Thank you.